Ron and I on the way to church were talking about uh, some of these issues. What are some of the issues that have a tendency to divide us? Many of them that don't matter a whole, whole lot. Um, I think about, uh, interesting, um, I had a couple of conversations on the way in today about what happened in, uh, in both Stillwater and Norman yesterday. But the truth is, isn't there a strong OSU versus OU factor? That there is a, uh, there is a uh, kind of a factor of, uh, if you're, if, if you're in, a, in an environment like I'm in, or maybe even in a business environment, you'll meet people who are really pro-Apple and others who are pro-PC, you know, pro-Windows. Uh, uh, it, it's funny how we can find that to kind of argue about and kind of thumb our nose at one another about. Certainly, uh, Democrat versus Republican. I'm not going there, but right now... It, <laughs> Got to deal with that one, okay? Which brings us to the liberal versus conservative, and I'm not sure completely how we define either of those. If you live in a theological circle, it's kind of Wesleyan versus Reformed. Uh, you know, we've got all that kind of thing. Rhonda mentioned to me this morning that the, one of the bellwether issues in her life certainly is is uh, pro-life, pro-choice. Um, okay, isn't it interesting in our world? And even around our tables, the issues that have a potential, at least, to divide us. Can you think of another one? Guns. I'm sorry? Guns. Okay. Uh, uh, boy, you know all that. Is this a house divided on, on, the second, on the Second Amendment at all? Huh? So pro-gun and not so pro-gun. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Rock and roll versus classical, or I could say, Bill, rock and roll versus country, you know. That'll get, get you in a fight than the guy with a pickup truck, you know. All right. Uh, Larry, I, I was caught your eye, and I'm thinking Ford versus Chevy. That's another one. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Over. Male versus female. I'm not going there either. <laughs> Good. Good. You get the point, don't you? You know, the issue we're going to deal with today in the 15th chapter of Acts is a deal that was divisive and just absolutely could not be. It had to be settled. Had to be settled. Kind of once and for all. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. Now, what I want you to understand is as I read history, for instance, on January 1st, 1863, then-President Abraham Lincoln issued what became known as the Emancipation Proclamation. It took a lot of years for the proclamation to be enforceable, but it was a bold step nonetheless. It was a turning point in the history of the, of the country, and because the U.S. at that time was the largest slave-holding nation on the earth at the time, it was a turning point in the history of the world. Okay? Can you, I cannot imagine living in that divisive of a day. You know? Now, what I'm going to point you, us to in Acts 15 was equally as divisive um, in terms of where the church was going to go. And I can't imagine being in that day and it not being decided the way it was decided in Acts 15. Let's go there, if you will. And Bob, if I can prevail on you, would you read the first three verses of the 15th chapter of Acts? This brought to all the Barnabas in sharp dispute, and they 
Like that, I like that emphasis there, Bob. That was good. Now, let, let me give us a little bit of background. We are now, in, in, by the time we get to Acts 15, we are now about 20 years after the cross, after the resurrection, after the day of Pentecost. Okay, The church is 20 years old. This is a very critical jun- juncture. It's about A.D. 51, we think, and uh, Christianity has begun to expand even though it began in the precincts in and around Jerusalem, it has spread to much of the known world, certainly beyond just the Jewish people. And um, um, what we've got to remember is uh, up until this time, Gentiles were tolerated by Jews with whom they interacted. Some Gentiles, like the, the centurion of Luke 7, had established a positive relationship with the local synagogue they kind of become known as a friend of the synagogue. They might even be known as a God-fearer. You read about that nomenclature in the book of Acts. But they were still Gentile. Unless, okay, and there was a proviso here, unless they decided, I want to become Jewish, even though I don't have Jewish blood running within me. And there were all kinds of rituals that had to take place in order for that to happen. So they would be considered, um, they would be considered um, uh, more than devout, more than just God-fearers. They would be considered converts. Well, if you're a male convert in that day, uh, the, one of the requirements was circumcision. Um, that was certainly painful for an adult. It was certainly uh, even... Um, a dangerous surgical procedure in the days of what were just rudimentary anesthetics, no antibiotics, those kinds of things. And so can you see how this could have been a huge uh, barrier to the growth of the church? Okay, this was years ago. Our kids were off in college. My wife was working at Deaconess Hospital in the... um, in the uh, neonatal intensive care unit. And uh, she brings me a sandwich and some chips for my supper in a little tray of a thing, a little thin plastic tray. And um, she says to me, I got these at the hospital today. I said, okay, what are they? And my wife said, I'm serving your sandwich in a Cirque tray. She didn't mean circumspection. <laughs> Walter, I would not eat my sandwich out of a cert tray. Okay? All right? Okay. She's not going to come back to Sunday school much anymore. All right. Could this have been a, hu- a more huge issue? This is the issue, and we're going to kind of deal with that today. Now. They're heading a direction where they're assuming that in order to become Christian, you've got to first become Jewish. Then Acts 10, that we looked at a couple weeks ago. 
Peter has this sheep lowered and, and uh, he meets a guy named Cornelius who is led to faith and has the Holy Spirit given to him just like Peter has, just like the others who were Jewish to start with. And Peter is left not only scratching his head, but praising God. We got to deal then with this particular division and how they're going to deal with it. Bob began to read it. Let me, let me kind of wade in on this. Um, one of the things that's going to bring this to the fore is that uh, our friend Paul, who we'll just, we've just kind of met so far, uh, we're going to be spending lots of time with him in the rest of this study, but our friend Paul was sent with one of the Jewish brothers by the name of Barnabas over to a place in Asia Minor called Antioch. And really, the church in Antioch and, and around there began to grow much faster than the church in Jerusalem. There was a danger of the tail wagging the dog, if you know that term. And so um, as, as Paul is over there, a, a, a group come that Bob read about a minute ago, a group comes into Antioch and begin to kind of work against him a little bit. So he and Barnabas head out back to Jerusalem to check in with the brothers to see what they're going to say. There is a threat to the survival and the growth of the church. And this threat from this kind of absolutist group is, um, do you have to become a Jew first? Now, let's look at verse 2. I want to read verse 2 to you again. When Paul and Barnabas um, had great discussion, dissension, sorry, it's in New American Standard, and debate with them, the brethren determined. So we're gonna, we'll finish that verse in just a minute. But there's, these were detractors who were saying this, and here's... This is going to be hard to write on your page, but you can do it anyway. You ready? Okay. Here's what they were saying. No circumcision, no salvation. No circumcision, no salvation. Steve Blair, can I get you to run over to Galatians 1 and read verse 6 through 10? Here's where Paul's wading in on it. It could be, some scholars believe that Galatians was written before Acts 15. I find that kind of intriguing. Uh, but... Either way, Paul's wading in on the issue in Galatians 1, and Steve's going to read for us verse 6 down through 10. Uh-huh. Do you catch here that Paul says, and he's talking about this idea, that in order to, be, to belong to Jesus, you've got to become a Jewish person first, okay? fully Jewish. Paul calls that another gospel. You catching that? Is he in favor of it or against it? Is it paper or plastic here? By the way, I, I got bit by that one yesterday. Okay, they, they, 
served up my groceries in, in uh, a bunch of them in a paper bag, and they fell on the garage floor, you know, so yeah. Is it, is it, is Paul in favor of this idea or not? I mean, he's real clearly not, isn't he? Uh, it can't be this way. So, uh, Paul is going to wade in on it. Paul and Barnabas, um, I, think, I think this is interesting. I got away on this, and right, I'm going to pick on you again here, okay? We were in college, I think, yeah. Married, I can't remember, but um, uh, we were in college. I can't remember exactly where it was, but I remember there was a The Lord smote me right then. Uh, I got myself in real trouble right there. Uh, we were listening to a dear old pastor who was a really good theologian by the name of E.E. E. Wolfram. His first name was Ewald. And um, he, he was preaching in, in a camp meeting that we were at, that we were doing some music at, and, um, um, and I remember Rhonda had this phenomenon that happened to her, that happened to uh, me young, at a younger age in my life, where it really she kind of got this, and she looked at me, and he was preaching about this, and she said, you know, I kind of see the church now. I see the church. Now, that was, John, did you ever hear... John Frick, did you ever hear that term in Phoenix? Did they use that term in Phoenix, seeing the church? Okay, it has to do with kind of seeing the church as no, having no boundaries, no barriers. It was kind of an old Church of God term. But you remember that? That happened to you? What had happened to Paul and Barnabas is in Antioch, they saw the church. Now, what you've got to recognize here is that Paul was a Pharisee himself. He kind of gets the legalism deal. But he's seen so much happen that his paradigm has shifted. Guess what? Guess what? Who else has seen the church? Our friend the Apostle Peter in chapter 10. He saw it too. So they have decided here, um, and by the way, you can fill in now the the last half of verse 2 here. Uh, Let me finish verse 2. Then uh, um, There was such dissension and debate that the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So there's these people that have come behind them, in in many ways undoing the work that they were doing at Antioch. Can you imagine anything more frustrating to a preacher and a disciple? I'm I'm preaching, I'm teaching, I'm leading you in faith, and somebody comes right behind me and says, oh, by the way, they're not exactly right. You need to go make a trip to the urologist first. Okay? I'm trying to make this as delicate as I can. Now, so the eldership of the Antioch church says, you two guys better hustle back to Jerusalem and see what the church says about this. And so they head back there. Now, the Antioch church was now thriving. So it's time for them to get a ruling from what they're going to call the brethren in Jerusalem. Okay, now, on the way, they make some stops. Okay, is there some, are there people on both sides of this issue in every family? In, my, in the family I grew up in, okay, my mother, when she was going somewhere, she went there. My dad always made stops along the way. 
okay? I won't tell you how it works in my house, but there's one of us that is always on the way somewhere, and the other one that usually takes about an hour to get there because I made a stop or two along the way. Now, I'm not going to tell you which one is which because I've already gotten myself in trouble today. Is it, you know anybody like that? They, they don't go straight way anywhere. It's like, well, you, you know, you said you'd be here 45 minutes ago. Well, yeah, but I had to stop at the store and I had to get my nails done. And, you, know, get, you know, all that stuff. All right. I, okay, you get it. Charles, can I come live with you? Okay. All right, you got it. Now, so they're stopping along the way. They're going. They're headed from Antioch, Jerusalem, which was several hundred miles. But they thought, well, there's people that we've talked to about the gospel on the way there. We're going to tell them what's going on in Antioch. And so they stop here, and they stop there, and they stop there. All those places are mentioned here. And Bob did a really good job pronouncing them as he read them all ago. What is their reaction to the news about what's going on in Antioch? Do what? They're, they're got great joy over this. They're pleased. They're happy about it. It's not, well, uh, we're happy, but. Uh, no, they're just happy. Shouldn't it be that way? Now, if, if you go back to um, uh, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, it's got to be one of Marty's favorite chapters in the Bible because he preaches from it quite a bit. Luke 15. Okay, Remember Luke writes the book of Acts, he also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke 15, there is this one little cryptic, it's not cryptic at all, it's wonderful. In the middle of Jesus talking about the lost uh, coin and the lost pearl and the lost son, the prodigal son, right? He just makes this parenthetical statement about heaven rejoices when a lost one comes home, heaven rejoices. Now, so my question is, the reaction of the folks in all these towns on the way from Antioch to Jerusalem was heaven's reaction, wasn't it? If heaven rejoices when you came home, why shouldn't everybody else? Am I making it way too simple? If heaven, is, if heaven throws a party when a lost person comes home, then why shouldn't the rest of us? So, okay, let's, let's move on in the story. I want us to go to verse 4, okay? Uh, verse 4, same chapter. John, can I, can I get you to read 4, 5, and 6? Okay, I can't overemphasize here 
the difference between verse 4 and verse 5. What did they do in verse 4? They're reporting results. Are you like me? You're kind of a results person. Okay? If I, if, if I want to do this, I want to know it's going to have a, a good outcome, a great result. And so they begin to report results. Uh, look at verse 12. I'm going to jump ahead just a few verses. But this is after this decision is made. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Go over with me, if you would, to chapter 28. And I'm going to read from verse 23. This is the very last chapter of the book of Acts. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnity, testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them and concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Now, I'm, I'm using this as, a, um, as contrast. At the end there, in, in 28, 23 that I just read, Paul is kind of arguing with him. He's explaining some things. He's having kind of debate over some issues. But in chapter 15, he's just reporting results. He's just telling a story. Did you know that a story is pretty hard to, um, your personal story is pretty hard to argue with. And so he's talking about here, what happened in Antioch is incredible. And in Caesarea, what happened with Peter was incredible. And in Samaria, in between those times, what happened is absolutely incredible. And the Holy Spirit's been poured out on them. And the people are just kind of listening and taking all that in. And that's the end of verse 4. And then look what happens in verse 5. I need to hold you there for just a minute. The joy of verse 4 was supplanted by, was taken over by this it seems interesting to me that the earliest church had imported Phariseeism. They had imported Phariseeism. What do I mean by Phariseeism? Do I? Legalism. Narrowism. We called a lot of things, couldn't we? Isn't it interesting that the church had chosen, at least it had kind of slipped in, the church had allowed Phariseeism to be imported into it from the Jewish system. And Paul's going to say, I put a reference here from, from uh, um, well, go with me to 23 verse 6. Would Paul understand this? You bet he'd understand it. 23 6, Paul says, Perceiving that one group were Sadducees, the other one Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Paul gets it. He was a Pharisee himself. But you don't, isn't it interesting that the he's going to call himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and yet he doesn't import that into his newfound faith in Christ? Is there a danger there for me? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? There's a danger there for me of importing this legalism into my following Jesus. There is so much at stake here. And so, in verse 6, they're going to the elders to talk about that. And there's a lot hanging in the balance here. Now, I want to talk just for a minute here in verse 6, uh, back in chapter 15, 
the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. Now that's that's a really short kind of kind of pethy little sentence, but it it carries lots and lots of weight. This was a huge huge responsibility. Let's talk about who was there. Um, the apostles. Okay, we kind of know who that was. Um, the original twelve chosen by Jesus, minus Judas Iscariot. Why? He's gone, right? Plus Matthias. Now you can read about him in chapter 1. Okay, so the original 12 minus Judas plus Matthias. And I hate to report this, but we talked about it last week. Minus James. James was martyred. Remember? Okay, so it goes back. It went from uh, 12 to 11 to 12, and now it's back to 11. So it's that group. Okay. Um, and then they also mention here the elders. Now, this, this word in our New Testament Bibles is the word presbyteros, and I don't pretend to understand it completely, but there's a different kind of delineation. This isn't the apostles. The apostles. This is, and it really is talking about people who are elder. They've been around, been around the block quite a bit, uh, but it also, it, it's, it's bigger than that. It's the leaders of the known church. Uh, this group probably includes James, the brother of Jesus. Because he's going to be the one that articulates their decision a little bit. Um, uh, he, he was probably one of those elders. It probably is going to include, if you, if you look at verse 22, uh, a couple of folks uh, named Judas Barsabbas, who is mentioned there, and Silas, who's going to factor heavily into Paul's travels later on. Both of those are mentioned. They send them with them back to Antioch. Probably those are non-apostles but elders here. So there are several of those, and they're meeting as a ruling council to make a decision here. And there's all this this decision is fraught with all kinds of intrigue. Okay, somebody go if you will to verse seven and read down through twelve. He'll get it. Okay, they got to make this decision. They've got Paul and Barnabas reporting one, reporting what wonderful things are going on in Antioch and all the places in between. And they meet behind closed doors to say, "What are we?" And the Pharisees have weighed in on this, right? The legalists. What are we going to do about this? Who speaks first? Peter. Does that surprise you, by the way? You know, I, it doesn't surprise me at lick. Although I think here it's very important that empowered by the Holy Spirit and emboldened by the Holy Spirit, he speaks first. He kind of sets the tone. Um, just a little clue for you, okay? Often when there's a decision to be made, the first person to speak kind of breaks the log jam. Be careful there. Um, um, you know, just as you're, as you're dealing in a meeting or in a, in a difficult 
negotiation or determination. Um, and, and, and second thing I want to kind of bring your memory here is Peter is the, um, I, I just put the term, I read this somewhere this week, Peter is kind of the first among equals, okay? They're all equals, but he's kind of the first, okay? And he's the one, he, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to presume here from what I see in the scriptures in other places too that he is the E.F. Hutton in the room typically. What's Peter's opinion? Okay, what's Peter's opinion? So it's good that Peter leads this debate. He's the first to voice of his opinion. Now he's got to mention, I'm going to go back just for a second here. Go back to chapter 10, verse 34. Peter says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Has he gotten there? You bet he's gotten there. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing, about, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We have witnessed it. We've been witnesses to those things. And he goes on to tell about what happened to him in Caesarea. So Peter is definitely the first to speak here. And his point as he speaks is this. What's going on in Antioch, number one, is God's doing. Not Paul's. It's God's doing. The Holy Spirit is there. This what happened in Caesarea was God's doing, not Peter's. In fact, he's going to say, you know, guys, I came into this kicking and screaming. I was unwilling. I told God in a vision that I was unwilling. I'm not going to eat anything unclean. Remember that deal? And secondly, he says, it happened not only at, at the initiation of God, not me, but it happened after hearing the gospel, not after Obeying the law first, but after hearing the gospel. The gospel is going to be a very important linchpin in this thing. And he's going to say then, he's going to continue uh, in verse 8 and 9 to talk about this, the, this beautiful thing that had been taught to him in chapter 10, and I reference here, where God says, there's no discrimination, no distinction between us and them. Talked about that a few days ago, didn't we? No distinction between us and them. In fact, God had given them the same spirit that he gave us. So, in verse 10, he asked a question. Kind of an interesting question. I'm not sure that I completely understand it. But he basically says, how are we going to put on their backs a yoke that we have failed in? The idea here? is that the Jews themselves have failed to maintain their own system. So why are we going to ask these people to do the same thing? And he says then, declares in verse 11, and I've read in two or three different places this week that this may be, it's interesting, this may be not John 3.16. This may be the most important verse in the New Testament. Verse 11, let's read it. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they also are. There is only one way, and it's the way of grace.
I got to say something here. This is nothing new. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Read Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Read the, the prophet Isaiah. Read the prophet Jeremiah. It's always been, read about Abraham and his life of faith. Salvation has always been by faith through grace. We read about that in Ephesians 2, verse 5, down through 9. We read about it in the book of Galatians 2.21. It has always been by faith through grace, or vice versa, by grace through faith. So, Paul and Barnabas begin to tell about what's going on in Antioch. And they say, you know what? Not only is this thing real, but one of the ways we know it's real is God has shown up every time this has taken place and people have been changed and saved and signs of their change has accompanied their faith. Now, I think the, the message here, and we'll be in chapter 16 next week and we'll, we'll move on and see how they appropriate this that we've kind of been driving at for the last couple of weeks. But the truth is here, God has called you and me to what I would call purposeful inclusion purposeful inclusion and the truth is that in this decision the truth won the day and you and I are sitting at 14,600 North Portland Oklahoma City Oklahoma zip code 73134 because of what happened in Acts 15 I want to just remind you of a story. You can turn back to Matthew 22 with me if you want to, but in closing, I just want to remind you of a story. Jesus tells a story that is one of my favorites from the Old Testament. He talks about a wedding feast. Now, who doesn't like going to a wedding? Most men. Answer that, yeah. But I do, isn't it true? I was thinking about this. If, if, if someone's getting married and, and you're close to the family, don't we feel a little bit slighted when we're not invited, right? I wonder why I didn't get invited. And you might even ask that question later on. And the person might say, well, it was just small. And that, that, that never just kind of quite satisfied me. I don't know about you, but even though I don't really want to go, I want to be invited. So Jesus tells this story about a king who throws a wedding feast for his son. And he invites all of the royalty to come to it. What was their response? Ah, you know, I don't have time. They're kind of like me. I don't have time. I'll send a gift. I don't have time to go. And it really, um, in fact, some of them got kind of rough with, with the, the servants that he sent to invite them and beat them up. You know what I mean? It was, it was kind of a bad deal. And, and, and the king is not at all happy about this. And he kind of deals with them in like kind in one part of this. I'm, I think I understand that passage, but I won't deal with that here. But what does he do next? What he does next I think is absolutely wonderful. The banquet table is spread. There is lots of shrimp there. Now, this is a Jewish story. There probably didn't any shrimp there at all. But that's what I, you know, that's what Ron had always looked for at a good reception, you know, right? 
But the banquet hall is set. The, the, the wedding feast has been prepared. And the people who were invited didn't show up. They spurned the invitation. So what does the king say? He said, I'm going to send you guys back out. And I don't want you to invite whoever you can bring. Whoever come, they're welcome. And he goes symbolically. I want you to see these two back doors here. He symbolically has them open all of the doors. He throws the doors wide open and says, come on. The banquet is spread. Aren't you glad that by hook or by crook, by invitation or not, we've been invited to the banquet table. I, th I thought of this earlier this week, and I'm kind of meditating on Revelation 3.20, where, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in, and I will dine with him, and he with me. The old King James says, I will sup with him. It's kind of this idea. If you'll just come... You can be a part of the feast. And he goes as far as saying, come sit at my table. Do you know, you have all been invited to the marriage feast. And do you know this? That you may not have ever known about it. If Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas and some of these other folks hadn't gotten it right in Acts 15. Okay, we'll be in 16 next week. I'll see you there, all right?